It's Friday, January 18th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. As the government shutdown continues, it seems that the conversation is starting to veer away from the actual issues, the humanitarian crisis at the border and the border wall itself. A new report says that possibly thousands of migrant children were separated from their families and released before officials started counting them. And we have no idea with who or where they are. Steph Kite, reporter for Axios, joins us for more on what is happening at the border. Next, there's a controversial startup called Ambrosia that is charging $8,000 to fill the veins of older people with the blood of younger people as a way to combat aging. And they do accept PayPal. Aaron Broadwin, science reporter for Business Insider, joins us to talk about the murky science behind this idea and where clinics are set up so you can get your treatment. Finally, what are you doing this weekend? Probably not going to church. According to a new survey, two-thirds of young people say they have stopped going to church and 96% of them say life changes are the main reason why they don't go anymore. Holly Meyer, religion reporter for The Tennessean, joins us for all the reasons young people just aren't in a church anymore. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. While many Democrats in the House and Senate would like to make a deal, Speaker Pelosi will not let them negotiate. The party has been hijacked by the open borders fringe within the party. Joining us now is Steph Kite, reporter for Axios. I just said yesterday on the podcast that it seems like things with the government shutdown are going backwards. There's been no progress made. There haven't really been any meetings between any of the parties to figure out a solution. And Nancy Pelosi had sent a letter to the president saying, maybe you should postpone the State of the Union address, citing security concerns. And we were all waiting for what the president's response was going to be. And it came in the form of canceling a foreign trip that she was going to take. He said, you can't use the military aircraft for this trip. What do we know about that? President Trump wrote a letter to Nancy Pelosi saying that she can't use military aircraft for a trip that she was planning overseas, partially to spend time with the troops and visit with NATO commanders and military leaders. And essentially, this did, this did come off as get back for the fact that Nancy Pelosi had asked Trump to delay his State of the Union address over the shutdown. As you said, there's been this back and forth. And although we've seen Democratic leadership and the president meet in the past, we haven't seen any progress come out of those meetings. So this definitely seemed to be a little bit of a political vengeance from the president and from the White House. But of course, on the other end of things, maybe it wouldn't have looked great for Pelosi to have taken this big overseas trip in the midst of a government shutdown. If there wasn't such a serious underlying thing happening right now, this would be comical, hilarious. The president sends her a letter that says, due to the shutdown, I'm sorry to inform you that your trip has been postponed. You know, it's like this tit for tat is going to start getting out of hand if they keep fighting about this. Let's Mm -hmm. get on to what the whole thing is about border security, the Mm -hmm. crisis at the border, as the president has said. Just going back to when the administration imposed their zero tolerance policy with families Mm -hmm. at the border and they separated a lot of children, we're now finding out that there's 
possibly thousands of migrant children that were released before officials started identifying the separated families, and we have no idea where they could be. The Health and Human Services came out with this investigative report. This, their inspector general came out with a report talking about how as early as the summer of 2017, officials had begun to notice an increase in the number of migrant children who had been separated from their parents and put in HHS custody. And so over the month through the fall, they saw these numbers increase. But it wasn't until June of 2018 that a court order forced HHS to reunite these migrant families. But that was probably too late for many children, at least hundreds. And they suspect as many as thousands of these migrant children who had already gone through the HHS process and had already been placed with other family members or other carers to take care of them while they await their immigration proceedings. And so we just found that out. The bottom line was we don't know how many people were actually impacted by the zero tolerance policy because of the poor record keeping by both DHS and HHS and the lack of communication between both agencies while this was going on. I mean, and it was a huge problem when it was happening. It caused the administration to reverse course on this. And we're talking about crisis at the border and humanitarian crisis and things like that. This contributed to this. This is a bigger part. And I think the messaging is all off with regards to the president and even the Democrats on some fronts where there is an issue with migrant caravans coming. They're going to ports of entry to claim asylum, which is a little different than has happened in the past Mm -hmm. with other migrants trying to break into the country over or under fences and things like that. So the issues are a little skewed. And this report coming out just really is a sign of just how messy this whole thing is. It really is. Immigration is a complex issue. And I think both sides do have more nuanced views. But because of this political environment, we're only seeing this very conflicting and divisive conversation around immigration. We're seeing the president shut down the government over building a wall, even though there's some speculation over whether that is even a useful deterrent. And then we also have still ramifications from the zero tolerance policy that are still being played out and highlight that there are needs within the immigration system. We do need better processes. We need investment in ways to make this a more efficient and helpful system. And so, you know, the bottom line is that there are plenty of ways that immigration enforcement can be bettered. And we've seen that based on requests from the Department of Homeland Security. But it's become such a political conversation that both sides are unwilling to budge and unwilling to compromise. Let's talk a little bit about the border wall the steel fence, the barrier, whatever you want to call it. The administration has kind of changed their tune as far as what the budget requests are. It was $25 billion, $18 billion, then they settled down into $5.7 billion. And that would build out, uh, I think the it was like 243 miles, something around there. And so that's really what is at issue right now. Exactly. And of course, it's important to remember that there has been fencing at the border. There have been barriers at the border for a while. But overall, most of the border does not have pedestrian fencing. So only about a little more than 400 miles of the 2,000-mile border has fencing or barriers that are intended to stop people from easily crossing into the U.S. And of course, there are ways to climb over the fence or dig under it. But that's kind of the status of a wall or barrier at the border right now. Many of the areas that don't have fencing, that don't have barriers that are intended to block people from getting across are pretty deserted areas or going through mountainous regions, areas or desert
desert regions, areas that aren't easy for people to be walking through anyways. This is what it's all about. It's about the hundreds of miles of border that don't have any barriers that Trump thinks should have barriers and he thinks would be the best way to keep people out. And the government shutdown is just going to continue in the meantime because nobody can decide on the effectiveness of what a barrier at the border would actually do. Steph Kite, reporter for Axios, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Our idea is to use essentially excess blood from blood banks and to help you restore your levels of these growth factors. And this is what it looks like. Uh, these are my parents. They like the treatment. Uh, my dad said he felt very energetic and my mother thought uh, her skin improved. But we're also seeing a lot of medical improvements as part of our clinical trial. Joining us now is Aaron Broadwin, science and tech reporter for Business Insider. We're going to be talking about a controversial startup that charges $8,000 to fill older people up with young blood. And they do accept PayPal payments, which is a good thing. But you've been following this company for some time. They're called Ambrosia. Tell us a little bit about them. I've been writing about this company. It's a startup for a couple of years now, and they are essentially offering infusions of young blood plasma from donors between the ages of, I think it's 16 to 25. And if you're 30 or over, you can go and allegedly you can go and get an injection of this young blood, which is supposedly supposed to revitalize you, do everything from make you smarter to make you more youthful appearing and generally revitalize. But... Huge caveat, there has not been any conclusive scientific study done to prove any of these claims. Yeah, the science is a little murky on this, although they have done clinical trials and they haven't released any of that data yet. But the founder, his name is Jesse Carmazan, has said that he's very excited about it, that it's it's promising. You got a chance to speak to him about this whole project. I've spoken to him a few times. He's certainly enthusiastic. He graduated from Stanford with a medical degree, but he is not licensed to practice medicine. He's not a physician or a doctor, but he is very enthusiastic. And yes, they did one clinical trial, which is registered on clinicaltrials.gov. However, if you visit the website, go to check it out, there's nothing there. The results have not been published. I asked Jesse about some of the findings and he told me that they were positive, but again, nothing exists to, to verify those claims. So that being said, they have five clinics across the US, LA, San Francisco, Tampa, Omaha, and Houston, where you can go get this procedure done for uh, one liter of younger blood is 8,002 liters is $12,000. How can they do this without publishing any findings or anything like that? It's allegedly up and running in five cities. At least that's what he told me. And that's what's listed on their website, ambrosiaplasma.com, I think it is. But the reason that they're able to do this, although there haven't been any publicized benefits of effectiveness, is because the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, has basically approved just blood transfusions in general. Usually they're used for emergency issues or more practice things that most people are familiar with. Mm But in this case, it's essentially what's called like an off-label treatment. So let's talk about that clinical trial that they did have. They infused about 150 people ages 35 to 92. Okay, if you're older, yes. But if you're 35, do you really need the blood of a 25-year-old? That's that's cutting it pretty close. How did yeah. that go? What ha- I mean, I, I know that the details are slim, but what have they said? And what have these people that participated in this trial, what did they say they felt? Any changes? The people who can get one of these procedures. Allegedly, you only have to be 30 or over to participate. I'm glad that you 
brought up the 150 people because in actuality, the 150 people figure is just the amount of people that they claim to have infused, but only 81 participated in the clinical trial. Still, that's a, that's a pretty good number. But unfortunately, if you check out that clinical trial online, there are no results listed. You can't tell what the findings were. And I asked Jesse for details on some of the participants, if I could get in touch with them. And he declined to offer me that information. So we don't know what the participants wow. experienced. They set up their website. They got uh, about 100 inquiries within that first week. So there are people that are interested in this kind of thing, my mind immediately jumps into a Black Mirror situation where in the near future, <laughs> people are getting the blood of younger people kind of like you would get your vitamins and liquids uh, to cure a hangover or something. You know, that's the first thing I start thinking of. Uh, they've done other kinds of trials similar to this, and they've concluded that it, they provided some limited cognitive improvements. What do we know about that? Because as I said, uh, not many people have really looked into the science of this, if transfusing blood actually improves uh, the body of another person. There has been some other research on the idea of doing what's called parabiosis or linking up two living organisms in exchange, one being younger and one being older, to exchange the young blood, to swap the older blood for the younger blood. But most of those experiments have been in mice, and mice are very, very different from humans. In fact, a lot of the reasons we don't have any groundbreaking Alzheimer's drugs is because a lot of the initial candidates showed all these promising results in mice, and then they tried to do it in people, and nothing happened. So it's important to keep that in mind, but when they did do it in mice, and again, this is a different group of researchers, Jesse was not involved in any of this, they did note some very limited cognitive benefits. It's an interesting idea. It's an interesting possible business. There's over 14 million transfusions that happen every year. So it's something that's been going on for a while. So it's relatively safe. But I noticed in one of your pieces, you wrote that working with blood plasma is a pretty serious challenge. A lot of times you need to get the right mixture of this stuff for a single recipient. You need it to get as many as the plasma from 10 donors. So where are they getting all this blood from? There's a lot of companies that do bank blood plasma, and plasma being the liquid part of the blood in which your red blood cells are suspended. That's the component of the blood that most of the research is being done in. And they do bank that. Again, it's mostly reserved for emergency reasons, things where people might actually need this stuff to survive. I believe I also asked Carmesin where they were getting the blood, and he deferred. But there are other companies that are studying plasma, doing actual quite legitimate research to try to find potential drug candidates for age-related diseases, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, things. Some of them Aaron Broadwin, science and tech reporter for Business Insider. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks again for having me. An overwhelming number of them said no, they dropped out, they stopped regularly attending. 18 to 22 is maybe when you're out there on your own, you're making decisions for yourself. So while it may seem like these folks are just all of a sudden not believing in God anymore, it's more complex. Joining us now is Holly Meyer, religion reporter for the Tennessean. There's a new survey out by LifeWay Research that says that young adults are dropping out of church in large numbers. The number they had is two-thirds of young people say that they've stopped regularly going to church for at least a year between the ages of 18 and 22. What do we know about this survey? LifeWay Research is a ministry of LifeWay Christian Resources here in Nashville, and they surveyed about 2,000 U.S. adults ages 23 to 30. These are folks who said they regularly attended a Protestant church while in high school and regularly attended means they attended two times a month or more. And they asked them, did you go to church? And 
an overwhelming number of them said no, they dropped out, they stopped regularly attending. I think it kind of applies overall. Maybe the numbers could be different across other religions, but I do feel like this general sense of, at least with young people, not being as engaged as they used to be. They gave these survey takers a list of 55 reasons and they asked them to pick all that apply. On average, they chose about seven or eight reasons. So for me, that points to no small thing. It seems like it's a lot of different things. Nearly 96% of them said that it was life changes, moving away, work responsibilities that prevented them from going to church. This is a time of transition for a lot of young people. 18 to 22 is maybe when you're out there on your own, you're making decisions for yourself, you're moving towns, going to college, partying, or just trying to keep your grades up. So while it may seem like these folks are just all of a sudden not believing in God anymore, it's more complex and complicated than that when you look at the numbers. Certainly there are a percentage of these, a relatively small percentage, who cite non-belief for why they've dropped out. That was interesting. an interesting note that very few people said that they did stop believing. As far as with the life changes, you know, a lot of people don't necessarily plan life changes. They just kind of happen and your priorities shift. I think a lot of people tend to develop a sense of spirituality or they take a lot of teachings that they've learned when they were younger and they still live with those and still try to apply those in their lives. But going to church and sitting through there and, and as you said, sometimes they feel judged by others. Maybe you don't feel that your political beliefs, your religious and ethical beliefs don't match up anymore with what they were teaching you. And so those are all the things that are difficult to balance. Right. And one of the pastors I spoke with who works here in Nashville said that a lot of the people who are coming to him may have grown up where they had a question. Maybe they phrased it wrong, but it was a legitimate question about their faith or why they believe something. And they felt like that got camped down and they weren't able to really kind of explore those big questions. And so he says that he tries to create an environment that encourages the ability to question but because he thinks it's important to, to have a firm understanding. He also says he doesn't know everything. So right. I think that's an interesting approach to the culture that you're creating within a church and that ability to kind of assess your own faith and have the courage to do that. I grew up in a Catholic church and in a Catholic school. So we went to church in the middle of the week and then we'd go on Sundays with my family. I'm one of these people that have dropped out of going to church. I, I just do not go regularly anymore. This is not my own personal reason, but I've heard a lot of people, especially on the Catholic side, these notions of priest abuse and things like that really tear them apart inside. They don't know how to react to such horrible things that happen. And then the church's response. So I know that turns off a lot of people too. Belief is very complicated. And I think when you finally have that autonomy of your parent or friend or family or that structure of the church you always grew up in, now it's like, well, now what? Do I need to make this a priority? Can I do something else? Can I sleep in on Sunday? Do I have to reach out to the student ministry organization on my university's campus? I also think what's really interesting in this survey is the fact that so many of the people who said that they dropped out didn't plan to. I talked to the researcher about that, and to him he was like, I think as people in the church community, we need to do a better job of preparing our young high schoolers. We need to equip them with the ability of how to find a church in their new town, who to reach out to, because another one of the ministry folks I spoke to said one of the best ways to reach people they found on their Iowa University campus was peer-to-peer. 
So it's not the 30-year-old who works in the office for the ministry. It's the person in the dorm going up and being like, hey, come to this service with me. That would be like the most effective way they've found to actually get people back in the church at this time. Right. I mean, it is all about community. A lot of people do return to it as they get older as well. You know, things calm down in their life and they reorganize their priorities and things change. So a lot of times that's how it happens as well. Holly Meyer, religion reporter for The Tennessean. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.